0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. The
1: Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hello, good morning. Welcome to the Michael Reed Show. This is Ken Murray with you until 11 a.m. this morning. Plenty of debate and discussion on the issues of the moment. If you want to get in touch, you can call us on 041 98 treble 000 or you can text us on WhatsApp at 086 1800 658. Well, now, if you were listening to the program on Friday, you will recall we were discussing what appeared to be the end game in the ongoing discussions over a resolution to the Northern Ireland Protocol, but uh, as you know, they say a week is a long time in politics and sometimes a weekend is just as long. We had hoped that there would be a deal on the table today that would be of mutual benefit to the UK and the European Commission, but it seems that is not the case. One person who may be a little bit more wiser than the rest of us is our old friend Karen Coleman, editor with EU News Radio. So Karen, um, no that you've been keeping an eye on events over the weekend. Are we any further on?
2: Well, I'm sure I'm not any wiser than the rest of you and it doesn't look like um, much progress has been made. As you said, Ken, um, there was a lot of optimism around on Friday that a deal was imminent and that it could be announced as early as today and or and or tomorrow. But of course um, politics being politics and especially um, politics to do with the protocol and Brexit has uh, meant it's become less clear that that's going to happen. Interventions over the weekend came from the UK, with media reports from from Britain, um, quoting sources close to the former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying, um, and and basically presumably quoting him indirectly, that it would be a great mistake to drop this Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which, of course, uh, Johnson, when he was PM, was trying to push through the British government and saying that the dropping of that bill, if that was to happen would weaken the hands of Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister, who is very much engaged in the talks at the moment. And since then, more reports from the UK saying, for example, this morning The Guardian is quoting, warning that more than 100 Tory MPs could rebel over the deal. Um, so it certainly is not looking like there is support at the moment for this deal. We still are unclear about the details of it, um, the DUP are saying they told, the, or Sammy Wilsons uh, from the DUP told the Irish Times he's not seen the text of any deal um, and, and saying actually there are huge gaps still left in the kind of issues he said they believe need to be addressed. Um, so a lot of uncertainty still and no clear indication that there is going to be acceptance of this deal within the next couple of days.
1: This intervention by Boris Johnson, and of course he's aligned with what's known as the EOG, the um, the right wing group within the Tory Party that uh, basically is anti the EU. Is this seen by some as an attempt to weaken Rishi Sunak in the hope and expectation that the EOG and their pals can get Boris Johnson back into Number Ten Downing Street?
2: Well, this is certainly the view of some. In fact, uh, George Osborne, the former uh, British Chancellor, said as much uh, during an interview with, I think it might have been Channel 4 over the weekend.
1: Yes, with Andrew and, Neil, yeah.
2: Yes, and said that Johnson was only interested in becoming Prime Minister again. Um, and of course, there is this view that is held by some um, and that, that's all he, he's m- m- most interested in, what happens to his own career. And if it means scuppering Rishi Sunak and his chances of remaining on as PM, then, you know, that might suit him himself. So, you know, one has to take that into account. If you look at the prime minister or the the time he was prime minister, um, he was a very self-interested politician. We know that that is the nature of Boris Johnson. Um, and what suits him best may often be the best for British politics from his perspective. Um, The European Research Group that you refer to, this hardline Brexiteer um, um, bunch of of Tory MPs within the Conservative Party, they've always been very anti and the Northern Ireland Ireland protocol, um, which is why they wanted to push through their own bill on this. And, of course, you know, it it is something that has to be taken into account. How easy is it going to please all the parties? And and as I was saying to you on Friday, Ken, um, I don't think everybody is going to come out happy out of this. Um, It's hard to see how a deal can be struck that will answer all of the seven points that the DUP want Uh, Met and resolved before they agree to it, and also um, pleasing this hardline Brexiteer group within the Tory party. Very hard to see how all those groups will be pleased, while also ensuring that the EU is satisfied, that the deal it wants to be accepted, will be accepted to all 27 member states. I mean, over the weekend, again, I think, um the um, Commission had to make sure that you know give an agreement that the European Court of Justice and its role in a um, post-Brexit uh, world would not be watered down. So yeah let me come to the a ECJ. long way to go, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'll come to the ECJ very shortly, but I'll go through what are known as the DUP 7 tests. And what the DUP is saying is that any new arrangement must include the following. Uh, it must fulfil Article 6 of the Act of Union. Now, this is basically a clause in the Act of Union that effectively says the residents of Northern Ireland Ireland will be treated as equals to those in GB. As indeed will the operation of trade. They're also saying, uh, item number two, that there will be um, no diversion of trade. The third test is that the new deal will not constitute a border in the Irish Sea. Uh, number four is give the people of Northern Ireland a say in making the laws which govern them. Number five, a result which will see no checks on goods going from NI to GB or from GB to NI. Uh, item number six is ensure there is no new regulatory borders developed between NI and the rest of the UK. And test number seven is is to preserve the letter and spirit of Northern Ireland's constitutional guarantee in the Belfast Agreement by requiring consent from a majority of its citizens for any diminution of its status as part of the UK. I mean, can those seven tests actually be met under any new arrangement?
2: Well, this is a key question, Ken. When uh, Geoffrey Donaldson, um, DUP leader, was speaking on Friday following his meeting, with Rishi Sunak, he actually said real progress had been made. I was watching um, that uh, doorstep kind of press conference he gave and I, I was surprised. I mean, I thought, wow, real progress has been made here, um, because up until then they had been, you know, obviously very unhappy with the with the protocol. But I, I when you read out that list, and I'm aware, very much aware of that list, and, and number three again, that nothing should constitute a border in the Irish Sea and that there should be free movement of goods, no checks and goods from Northern Ireland to Great Britain or, or the other way around, it's hard to see how those demands from the DUP would align with the Brexit trade deal and what we're hearing, which is that there will be a creation of green lanes and red lanes and green lanes mean goods can come freely between the two regions. But if they go into the Republic of Ireland and therefore an EU state, there'll have to be checks on those goods. Um, so it's, it's very unclear. We don't know what exactly Rishi Sunak was saying to the DUP when he held those meetings on Friday and they haven't actually seen, apparently, the text of this deal that's being done. But if they're saying real progress has been made, I, I, I'm just, I, I, I mean, it's, it's hard to see what the real progress is that would enable the DUP to be happy now that those seven points have been met, while at the same time ensuring that the EU single market isn't compromised.
1: Yeah, you, um, man- yeah, you mentioned there the European Court of Justice, and this seems to be um, a sticking point because... Uh, The plan is that Northern Ireland, uh, I suppose to put it as simplistically as I can, effectively remains in the EU for trade purposes only and that therefore the European Court of Justice has authority uh, over Northern Ireland and the DUP feels that this isolates them from GB. Is that um, an issue that can be overcome or by virtue of the fact that Northern Ireland in inverted commas, remains in the EU, just purely for uh, trading purposes only. Northern Ireland is seen as being in the EU and not in the UK, if you follow what I mean, just purely from trading.
2: Well, the um, ECJ is a particularly contentious issue for the hard Brexiteers and for this European research group. The notion that the EU could have any say whatsoever over British laws is absolutely, I mean, dreadful from their point of view because they say, what was the point of Brexit? I mean, the whole point of Brexit was to release themselves from their perspective of any EU influence over their laws and their ways of life, etc. And the fact that it might be there in the shadows because of trading issues with, um, with Northern Ireland um, is something that they certainly don't want. It it, ne- it it wasn't as strong an issue for the DUP that's what we understood it was, um, as much for them. But the, but the problem is, if they want to continue to remain in a single market which is the deal that was done from Brexit, then they have to adhere to EU trading rules. And if there are issues in the long term, legal issues over that, then the ECJ as it currently stands would have ultimate legal oversight over those disputes now there's talk about dispute resolution mechanisms and that maybe the ecj they might find a way to ensure that the ecj really only comes in um, as a last resort mechanism and I, I you know it's very possible that words can be found the eu is very good at coming up with texts and ways of saying things that are compromises, but it still gets everybody past their so-called red lines. So it is possible that they may come up with something like that, but that ultimately the ECJ is the ultimate arbiter. And this is where Rishi Sunak is going to have a major challenge on his hands to ensure that whatever kind of text is they come up with in the end can somehow get past the hardliners' from especially the European Research Group and the hardlines, you know, the Brexiteers and the Tory party and the DUP at the same time. And maybe he won't be able to satisfy those those sides and he'll have to push it through one way or another and then, you know, then you come back to it go through a vote in the House of Commons. Labour have said they will support it, so it's possible it will get past that, but his position will have been weakened. So this is going to be a major test of Sunak's ability as a leader to, on the one hand, balance very unhappy brexiteers and possibly the dup and on the other satisfy the eu get the protocol finally dealt with and and move on from there
1: sammy wilson of the dup was on sky news this morning and he appears to have added if you like an eighth Um, clause to the the seven tests. Namely, he's basically saying now that uh, no deal can be agreed unless the DUP have some input in its formation. Are we looking at a scenario where it seems that no matter what the EU Commission and the British government come up with, the DUP will come up with some other roadblock not to go into government at Stormont with Sinn Féin?
2: Well, that is a serious problem. And and, and if it appears now that they're adding things onto, in addition to the the seven points in their list, then, you know, you have to ask the question, well, would nothing satisfy the DUP? So even if the seven points on the list are actually met, are they now coming up with something else about the imposition, you know, of EU law in Northern Ireland or whatever other issues that they, that may emerge? And and this, is, I mean, what then? Is there, is there going to be constant paralysis in Northern Ireland? Will they not be able to get the institutions up and running because the DUP are not satisfied with anything that's going to be put on the table? I mean, that, that is a real possibility here that they won't be satisfied with anything and they will refuse to go into uh, power-sharing institutions in Northern Ireland because they're not happy with the deal that has been struck. That's a a possibility. So then what are we facing? Are we facing constant paralysis in Northern Ireland politics and where you won't be able to get laws done and things moved on and very serious issues, as we've seen over the last few weeks about health issues and other things? I mean, that prospect would be horrendous if that's What's going well, to happen. Well on
1: that very point um, I was talking to uh, Dr Brian Feeney uh, f- of the SDLP fame who writes a column with the Irish News newspaper in Belfast and I was talking to him last summer and he was making the point to me that if given a choice the DUP will work towards a scenario where they would rather have direct rule from London whereby London is running Northern Ireland rather than have a storm assembly where Sinn Féin has say in running the place. It, Is it fair to say from your own observations that the DUP seems to be pushing for this, that it's better to have London rule in the north rather than have uh, devolved rule where Sinn Féin and others have a say in how the place is run?
2: Well, that may be the way they're thinking, but they, you know, ultimately the DUP has to recognise that the demographics are changing in Northern Ireland and along with those demographics, the Politics. The political makeup is changing, and Sinn Féin is becoming, you know, the dominant party there. And either they get stuck in the dark ages and they refuse to move on and recognise the reality of what is happening here, or they accept it and they move into power-sharing institutions and they find a way to work with one another. I mean, you know, when when the Brexit. Uh, vote was coming up initially. I remember uh, reading an article about uh, I think it was women in their 70s, possibly 80s, in Brighton who were reminiscing about Britain-England before they joined the EU as they did with us, Ireland, in 1973 and how wonderful it was and, you know, they didn't have immigrants or anything like that and that's why they were voting for Brexit because of, they thought it would bring them back to that era, this bygone era that they had romanticised about and that it would be wonderful um, and, and they wanted to go back to that. But, but, you know, times change, the world moves on, things Things develop, and and are you either going to be stuck in a time warp where you you prefer to be back to the days when you were in par or where things were very nice, or you move on and you accept that that change happens? Um, and and I'm for, I, I can't answer that question. Okay, well, <laughs> you know,
1: we'll just have to wait and see what the next uh, day or two or indeed weeks uh, produce for us. Uh, whether or not uh, Rishi Sunak can get this. Uh, Expect a deal over the line with the EU Commission. We're going to have to leave it there, but uh, no doubt we'll be talking to you again. That's uh, Karen Coleman there, editor with EU News Radio. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break.
3: Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM.
1: FM. Well, as you heard in the news, one of the leaders of one of Drogheda's two feuding criminal gangs has died in a hospital in Wales. Cornelius Price from Gormanston in Eastmead was facing charges in the UK for his part in a kidnapping and blackmail plot, but became ill and never stood trial. One man who's been keeping an eye on Cornelius Price is Stephen Breen, crime editor with the Irish Sun newspaper, and he joins me on the line right now. First of all, can you tell me a little bit about Cornelius Price's background, Stephen?
4: Yeah, well, Cornelius Price is originally from England, um, from the Rochdale area. He's been heavily involved in organised crime since his early 20s. He would have started his criminal career in car theft, but also in bringing stolen cars from England uh, to the UK, but that quickly progressed into the world of drugs, where he became he- heavily involved in bringing drugs from the UK into Ireland, specifically the North Dublin, Drogheda, and Louth areas. And um, he was uh, regarded as a very dangerous and volatile and violent criminal. And um, he's been linked uh, to uh, three murders. So he has, and one of those uh, murders is the, the murder of uh, Benny Whitehouse in, in Baldrigg and that was quickly followed by uh, the double murders of Willie Mohan and his pregnant uh, partner Anna Varslavin. So he is someone who was well known to Gardy. He's someone also who was heavily involved in the Drahada feud and was a major target uh, for the Gardy.
1: The death of Cornelius Price and his involvement in the Drogheda feud, is that the end of the issues in Drogheda, or are there still outstanding issues?
4: Well, in relation to the Drogheda feud, um, I interviewed Chief Superintendent Alan McGovern just a few weeks ago, and under Operation Stratus, which was launched in 2018 following the attempted murder of one of the gang leaders, Owen McGuire, Guardi have enjoyed numerous successes. They have seized drugs, Firearms brought people before the courts and also targeted the assets of those in the feud. But with any feud, you know, the Guardi can can't become complacent. In relation to the Drogheda feud, you have two of the principal characters, namely Cornelius Price and Robbie Lawler, who are now both dead. So obviously that would cause serious disruption to the, the both factions that they were involved in. But with any of these feuds, it just takes one incident in a pub or on the street for uh, another major incident to be sparked and to be investigated by the Gardaí. But without question, in recent years, you know, Drogheda has undergone a a significant change and Gardaí did seem to get on top of this this violent feud.
1: Cornelius Price died in a hospital in Wales. What exactly was he suffering from?
4: Well, he's been in hospital since October uh, 2021. He had a a brain disease, uh, which he contracted when he was in uh, England. Um, he was currently uh, on bail in relation to uh, a kidnapping and a blackmail uh, plot that he was allegedly uh, involved in so uh, he, he was uh, doing okay, he'd been on social media and often taunting his enemies um, and people who were opposing him in, in various feuds And um, until October 2021 when he was rushed to hospital but I think his condition deteriorated over the last couple of days and his family were informed and they made their way to Um, two whales to be at his bedside and he passed away uh, yesterday evening.
1: Well now, was he still active? or In other words, was he conducting business from his bed?
4: No, he he wasn't because he was in a coma and he was in intensive care. I think it's only recently where he's been able to engage with his family and have video calls with his family and so there's no suggestion that he, he was still actively involved in organised crime because of the nature of his condition.
1: At face value, this is uh, good news for society that a criminal um, has disappeared off the radar, so to speak. But I presume the parents of Willie Mohan and Anna Varslavan are very disappointed that he will not be brought to justice. Have you been talking to them? And if so, what are they saying?
4: Yes, I, I was speaking to Joe Mohan. That's Willie's father. And obviously, Joe was saying that he didn't want to see anyone die. His primary concern, and that of his families has been to find the remains of Willie and Anna. They've been unable to do that, but he, he did uh, obviously wish for Cornelius Price to be charged by the Guardian to face a, a criminal prosecution because he, with, without question, holds Price responsible for the murders of his son and his partner. And the, the, the important thing as well, but what Joe did say, is that he maintains and he believes now that Price is gone, there was a culture of fear and people were living in fear of Cornelius Price because of his violent background. But now that he's gone, the hope is that people will come forward with information and lead Gardaí to the
1: remains. Finally, Stephen, are we to believe now that uh, the Drogheda feud is over and that the outstanding issues have been dealt with by the Gardaí and the courts?
4: You can never say, Ken, that a, a feud is over. Um, obviously, and the guards have enjoyed major successes in the last few years. You know, you have two principal characters who are now dead. You have uh, people serving time for very serious offences. Only last week, uh, a couple of individuals were convicted in relation to the, the killing of uh, Keane Woods. You have other key players who are now on the run from the guardie, but, and Both factions in this field have been severely uh, disrupted uh, in their activities of, of organised crime and drug dealing and targeting each other. But you know, the guards can't become complacent and that's the message they're keen to get out. You know, they have put a lot of resources into confronting this feud and bringing those responsible to justice. But I think that those investigations will continue and we're likely to see more people before the courts in relation to the feud.
1: That's a Stephen Breen there, crime and security correspondent with the Irish Sun newspaper there, speaking to me earlier this morning. If you want to get in touch, our number is 41 983 0 or you can text us on WhatsApp 86 More to come. We'll take a break.
3: Michael, Michael
1: Reid on, on LMFM. Now, support for Fine Gael has bounced back by four points while Sinn Féin's popularity has taken a three-point dip to reach its lowest level since 2021. Leo Brand's party support has jumped to 23% according to the latest Sunday Times behaviour and attitudes poll and the poll showed that Sinn Fein is currently on 31% down 3 still the most popular party in the country Fianna Fáil are on 24 down 1 Fine Gael are on 23 up 4 the Greens are unchanged on 5 Labour is up one at 5 Social Democrats two no change Solidarity are at 1% and the Independents are on 9%. Well, have Sinn Féin lost their appeal with the public? Who knows? We may find out in the next few minutes. I'm joined on the line by Fergus O'Dowd, who's the Finnegal TD for Laudan-E-Smeath, and uh, Rurio O'Muricu, who represents uh, Sinn Féin in this constituency as well. So, Rury I'm going to start with you. You've dropped three points. What are you doing wrong?
5: Well, look, you know, you're going to guess. Um, I, I suppose all the terms people use when they talk about polls, that it's a snapshot in time that you just can't take one poll on its own, that what you have to watch is obviously for trends. Um, and at that point in time, you can make a determination in relation to whether we're actually down or whether Fine are off in any real terms. Now, don't get me wrong. Everybody loves the polls where you're up, and they nearly dismiss the polls where they're down. And there is a margin of error in relation to all of this, which can be in around 3% or, or thereabouts anyway.
1: Sure, but yeah, no, let, me so, put the, well. let me put the point to you, Rory, that we have a cost-of-living crisis. Uh, a lot of working families are stretched like never before to pay their electricity bills, their fuel bills, and all the other bills you can add in. We had the Damien English controversy where he had to resign. Pascal Donoghue got himself into a little bit of hot water over his expenses for posters. Normally, those type of things give the opposition parties uh, room to score points and push themselves up in the poll. But it seems that Sinn Féin failed to capitalise on these Fine Gael weaknesses. So haven't you been poor in, as I say, pouncing on those opportunities?
5: Well, I'm going to take what I'm getting on the doors in, in, in Nandalk even over the last number of weeks. And that is still where, obviously, support is still incredibly high for Sinn Féin, But I am being
1: told. Well, it would be in Dundalk, it would change. be seen as no, a very... No, no,
5: no, I get that, I get that, but I'm going across all places, all areas, all the rest of it. I, like, we are still on a percentage at one stage that we wouldn't have considered are here, that we hoped for, but were thought was many, was far away from us. Now, see, at this stage, the whites still, like, and we all know, this is a snapshot in time, there will eventually be an election called... That is where the real movement will happen. I have absolutely no doubt that things aren't changed in the sense people are under all those pressures that you're talking about. And see, when it comes to an election, and that's when most of them will actually make a decision. But a considerable amount of people have already made their decision that... They are dealing with a government that doesn't have their back, as they see it, and they see us as the change that they need and that they're looking for. So I don't foresee that changing in any major degree. Um, and there are certain issues sometimes that happen up in Leinster House and that can take up an awful lot of their time, and they aren't necessarily what matters to people on the ground. I also I also accept that, because the people are coming into my office or the people that you meet, and they are talking about the cost of, of obviously absolutely everything, the pressures that they're under they're talking about housing they're never not talking about housing and the impact that has on every other sure. issue that's going and combined with that of health care that that goes without saying look. okay well let me those let me put those issues that are in the public domain sure. r- around waiting lists and all the rest
1: okay rory let me put those points to fergus it out so fergus according to rory it's only a snapshot in time and Sinn Féin will be back up at the next opinion poll and there's nothing for finnegal to get excited about is that the case
6: Well, I think what is true is that Sinn Féin have been found out and that's why the numbers are falling. And the biggest area is the question of trust in Sinn Féin. And when the leader of Sinn Féin uh, received a personal donation of €1,000 from the the water border and now jailed criminal, Jonathan Dowdle, uh, the issue is the credibility in saying that it was to the party and not to her personally. Uh, And and the issue is that uh, Sinn Féin... Uh, I have not and don't acknowledge the facts that this government is providing the stability that the people want and the leadership. And particularly the budget, particularly people on social welfare, as, as Rory well knows, uh, it, they all received uh, 12 euros. It'll never be enough, but it is a significant increase uh, over previous years. And the reason they're getting that is that the government... Is running the country in a very good position in that we're able to put six billion aside for the rainy day when it happens. And as regards childcare, costs are going down as regards transport costs are going down, as regards uh, the fuel allowance, uh, people are able to earn more than the basic social welfare payment. I'm talking particularly about pensioners. And we've extended that so there'll be 80,000 more people will get the fuel allowance, and that a couple over 70 will be able to have a 1,000 euros uh, per week gross and still get the fuel allowance. So we are dealing with issues. There's a lot more to be done. Uh, but I think that what this government has shown is shown the leadership, it's provided stability and I believe we have the vision and the way forward. Okay. Particularly for people on social welfare incomes and the squeeze middle and that's oh. what's been recognised.
1: Okay, well Fergus, let me put that very point to Rory Omoraku. According there to Fergus Rory, Sinn Féin were found out over the Jonathan Dowdle affair and you made a mess of the way you handled it. Isn't that true?
5: Well, if we're looking at the polls, are we not talking about a poll in which Mary Lou McDonald's personal popularity has gone up? I
1: well, let's let's talk easier. about the Jonathan Dowdle affair. I mean, Fergus is saying that uh, Sinn Féin were found out to effectively uh, be working very, very closely with an individual who is caught up in the Kinnaghan-Hutch feud and that this was bad PR and that this has contributed to the fall in support for Sinn Féin. What, what's your response to that?
5: Well, I'm saying, first of all, how anyone can extrapolate what exactly has an impact on a poll, you know, is is beyond me, unless we're talking about significant changes up and down. And in fairness, I would imagine that Fine wouldn't even be particularly happy with 24% at this point in time. But the fact is, the fact is, you're talking about somebody, yeah, who if we had realised... What he was wouldn't have been anywhere next to near us, was a councillor for a very short period of time. And all this stuff that is now in the public domain happened after his involvement with Sinn Féin. Now, let's be absolutely clear, Mary Lou Macdonald or anyone else doesn't have anything to answer in relation to this. If there was something to answer, those questions would be put to her and to Sinn Féin, and they're not, by Sybil or anybody else.
1: Yeah, the bottom line, uh, Fergus O'Dowd, is that despite the drop in support for Sinn Féin, uh, Fine Gael is not the most popular party in the land. So doesn't Fine Gael have more work to do to try and convince voters yeah. that it should absolutely. be back in government at the next election?
6: Absolutely, of course we do, absolutely. And that's what we're using this opportunity. And this week, while it won't be enough, and I agree it will never be enough, uh, there will be some, hopefully significant supports for people, particularly for people who are on social welfare, and, and that we need to be seen to ensure that people, that their income doesn't go over the cliff, because times are very tough on people right now. And I will absolutely acknowledge that. But the point about Sinn Féin and the 1,000 euros is that uh, Mary Lou put it down correctly as a donation to her personally at the time. So Rory is quite right. She did put it down that she did receive it personally as a personal donation, but she denied that when all of this other stuff came out? So, I mean, it's the, the, there are serious questions there. And uh, having said that, I, I think that what people want is a government that they can align, that they can trust. And I believe people can't trust Sinn Féin.
1: So there you go, Rory. People can't trust Sinn Féin. Isn't that the case?
5: Well, let's be clear. I don't want to have a conversation again about SIPO returns and all the rest of it. What Fergus is doing is what Finegel spokespeople have been set out to do for a number of weeks and that is to divert because they don't didn't want to deal with the issues that were around Pascal Donahue and all the rest of it. Now nobody's interested in revisiting that stuff. Simple will make whatever determinations. Sinn Fein have nothing to answer in relation to this. Sinn Fein, even on this poll, are still the most popular party. A significant amount of people see Sinn Féin as the means of delivering the change that is necessary. And when Fergus is talking about supports and all the rest, of it, we could just deliver this down to one issue. That one issue is housing. And we've got two particular issues at this point in time. We obviously have people who are under severe pressure because of the huge increase in uh, mortgage. We really need consideration to be given in relation to mortgage interest relief. We need particular actions because people who are under pressure because vulture funds have their uh, actual loans. And then beyond that, rentals through the roof. We do not have the controls that we need. We know the rent pressure zones have not done what was necessary from a point of view of ensuring that we have sustainable rents. We need to make sure... That we have a bar on any increases in relation to rents, and we need to make sure that we can put more money
1: back in. Okay, Rory. Well,
5: we, we, we. this out. So see until we deal with even those sure. issues. Sure.
1: Okay, um, well, we'll see, we'll see what comes out. Th- sure. We'll see what comes out in the package tomorrow. But if I can change track, lads. Fergus, I'm going to come back to you because sure. you're chairman of the Aroctis sure. Committee on the Good Friday Agreement. What are yeah. the implications for the North if. The EU and the UK can't do a deal that's to the satisfaction of the DUP.
6: Well, I think the reality is that it's the sovereign government in England and the EU that make the decision. And I think that they will reach an agreement, that is, the British government and the European Union. But the problem is uh, because they have a different agenda to us here. They're interested in the economic future in their own country, and particularly in terms of the the, the huge downside there has been as as a direct result, you know, of of, of Brexit. Uh, the difficulty is if the unionists don't accept it, as somebody, and that's the main unionist party, it's going to make they will make sure that there is no that there is no executive under the present rules. And that the country will drift on and on and on, and in that vacuum, as Rory and I know, will step in the wrong people at the wrong time to do the wrong things. So it's absolutely essential that you know that we do everything we can uh, to encourage the deal, to encourage the unionists uh, to to participate fully. Now, I've raised this with the DUP myself in a meeting I had with, with senior people in the party. And they say they're called a Democratic Unionist Party and they do accept... Or they said they would accept that they will that they would take the second place in the executive, and I think myself uh, that that is one of the issues that's strong undermines as they come up to a local sure.
1: election. Well, let me put that point to Europe. Let me put that point to Rory. Rory, are you getting any indication from your pals north of the border that the DUP, particularly the hardliners, are putting every roadblock in the way to keep Sinn Fein out of the first minister's office instalment?
5: Well, you have have seen what's in the public domain at this point in time, right? We we all know what that is. Look, we all know that there's certain elements of unionism that are utterly uncomfortable with the fact of there being a nationalist, never mind a Sinn Féin first minister. We're aware of that. We know they painted themselves into a corner around the whole issue around the protocol. We know that there are even, what would you call it, there are cul-de-sacs within that, people talking about the uh, ECJ and other such factors, well in fairness when the European Commission, when Sestovich and others have met people in relation to businesses in the north and whatever issues people have a bit streamlining, they've seen the advantages of the protocol, but beyond that they're not too particularly perturbed about that issue. But the fact is The British government, Rishi Sunak in particular, has enough problems going on at this point in time that he actually needs a deal and definitely doesn't need anything that would smell like the possibility of a trade war with the European Union. Now, the question is, can he come up to a sensible deal um, with the European Union? And then beyond that, can he sell it to his own hardliners with his own party? Now, let's be clear. Like, no Tory leader has ever cared that much about the DUP or unionism, and they will be only too delighted to put them uh, okay. under the bus as have wh- wh- done many times before. But that's not what we want to see. Sure. What we want to see is... That the DUP that a deal can be done. That obviously streamlining and whatever happens very quickly. And that the DUP can see the advantages of that, and then on that basis that we get a deal and we get the executive up and running. Because okay. people, even the considerable sure. amount of unionists, okay. want to see as soon as possible.
1: Okay, Rudy, I'm going to put the final question to Fergus O'Dowd. Fergus, um, if the DUP. Um don't accept the deal that's coming down the line, whatever it may contain. Is direct rule from London or joint rule between Dublin and London, are they realistic alternatives in the event of a vacuum? I
6: think a director would be a disaster because it'll mean that there will be no, and there is no, direct input into the very huge issues. You had the organ donor issue there in the north recently. You know, you you have the north south bodies, you have all of those things. None of them would function if you don't have an executive. So it's critical that there is an executive, and I think one of the big problems. Sunakaz is a fellow by the name of Boris Johnson who's stirring it up now for his own reasons uh, to try and take over that party again. And that's really right. bad news okay. for all of
1: us. We're going to have to leave it there. That's uh, okay. Fergus O'Dowd, Finnegal TD for Loud and Eastmeath, and Muriel Muruku, in Fein TD for Loud and Eastmeath. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break.
3: Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
1: If you want to get in touch, our number is 041 9832 000 or you can text us to WhatsApp at 086 1800 658. Now, you may have heard in the news that the Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan, has announced 67 new or enhanced bus routes under the Connecting Ireland programme. They will be rolled out before the end of the year at a cost of 8.5 million euro. Among those up and running already are the routes from Kilkenny to Castle Commer, to Carlow and on to a Enniscorthy to Wexford and locally Athboy to Drogheda via Navan and Duleek. And it's hoped that the new proposed routes will be all functional by the end of the year. One man who certainly, uh, uh, I think it's fair to say, will be welcoming this new investment is Seamus Boland, who is the CEO of Irish Rural Link. Uh, Seamus Boland, did this satisfy the demands of Irish Rural Link in terms of providing an adequate public bus service for rural areas around the country?
7: Well, look, firstly, first of all, we do welcome the proposals. Uh, we've been calling them for a long time, and they do improve uh, the kind of routes that are available. Uh, meeting meeting, or creating an adequate uh, meeting of demand, etc., is another question. I, I we've called time and time again, for a really strong, radical review of how bus services are managed and organised. But look, this is a a massive uh, increase in spending, given the spending problems we had in the last few years. And it also represents a commitment by government, which is a very good commitment, to start looking at this kind of transport system to try and solve the transport problem.
1: Well, bus routes in the past were wound down because uh, public demand wasn't there. Is there any evidence to suggest that there is a new demand, hence the rollout of 67 bus routes across the country?
7: Yeah, I think the difference, yeah, I think you're right. But I think the difference in in this case is that the bus routes that wound down were, were very there were fixed bus routes, um, basically decided by Bus and I'm not criticising them for that. They were trying to do their best. But they were, were rarely in the right places at the right time. The stops weren't suitable for people. So it was hard to get people uh, to engage in, in routes that simply weren't planned properly. I suppose the good thing about Local Link is it is about planning transport in the community so therefore it's much more attuned because most of the local link operators are attuned to the needs of their own area. It's, it's managed by local people etc. So I would like to think that the increasing number of routes which has always been a uh, demand of ours will meet the kind of demand increasing because transport is more expensive, people are looking for other ways to travel, and this, and the biggest drawback was the lack of routes and indeed the lack of services.
1: Um, If one was to judge uh, a plan by looking at a map of Ireland, it doesn't seem to be a case of there's a bus route for everybody in the audience. I'm just looking here. I think there's only one bus route in Donegal. There's large chunks of Kerry have no new proposed bus routes, large chunks of uh, Tipperary, large chunks of Wicklow and Wexford and Offaly and Leash. Are you satisfied that this will meet, if you like, the concerns of people who live in areas where population, for the want of a better description, is winding down. Young people are leaving, not coming back, and some villages, in some cases, are becoming ghost towns. And there's nothing being done to encourage people to move back in because there will be no bus routes.
7: Look, that's for sure. I mean, you you rightly point out those areas and they are gaping areas on the map. If you go on Transport Ireland, you'll see that map. And, of course, there are vast areas. And our rural always said that transport routes uh, for rural purposes, and that's the kind of short journey purposes, the 10-kilometer purpose from one village to a town where people might meet uh, or take a, a more longer bus route, like the train or the bus or Bus errand. those small bus routes are uh, integral.
3: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about
7: to a proper transport system. And look, that map that you're looking at, indeed I'm looking at it as well, should be peppered with routes. And as you say, there's large areas not, not connected. So we do have a long way to go, but I suppose for some reason it takes us a long time to come to these conclusions. We've been saying this for a long time. This, this is why we welcome this, but heavens above, we still have a long way to go.
1: Uh, One could be cynical and say that uh, the minister, who is, after all, the leader of the Green Party, um, you know, isn't particularly uh, bothered so much about providing a bus route, but seems to be driven, if you'll pardon the pun, by a desire to get more people out of cars and onto electric buses and thus reducing the carbon emissions in this country. Is that perhaps one of the lines of thinking behind the rollout of these 67 bus routes?
7: Well, in a way, that's what it takes. We had meetings with him and Ryan over the year and we impressed upon him that taking people out of cars without any real alternative is simply not going to work in rural areas and you can't enforce it and you can't make it happen. This, As I said um, a minute ago, and you've said it too, looking at the map, we have a long way to go before we can say people have that alternate or alternate way of traveling. Yes, the minister is obviously driven because he's leader of the Green Party, and that's fine, there's nothing wrong with that. But, I mean, I would look for a much more comprehensive transport policy over the next five years. I would put together a kind of a, a more, even, than that, even this launch, it's it's full of, um, what would I call it, caveats. Uh, you know, the duration of the planning and design process depends on local authorities there's a whole load of caveats even to get this done and i i just worry that you know that if we don't move a lot faster after all the same minister knows about the commitments we have signed up to climate change um, but this this launch was very welcome. It uh, would want to double and treble very quickly in the next couple of years.
1: Yeah, I'm fascinated looking at the documentation where it outlines the various uh, you know routes like Cray to Athlone or uh, Enfield to Navan, and I see words like planning and design. What planning and design is involved in deciding that a bus uh, should run from Dungarvan to Clonmel?
7: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It, believe it or not, I'm afraid it's a, it's a complicated enough process. Uh, it, first of all, this is uh, this particular programme under the National Transport Authority um, is is pretty much subsidised quite a bit, but then you could argue so as bus air and services. But you can't have same buses running on the same road, so you have to talk to other operators. You have to make sure that bus stops are in the right place and that safety and all of that is taken into account. You also have to ensure when planning these routes, even though they're outlined in this, that they actually will be, uh, I'm not saying necessarily saying profitable, but that they will be used. So you you have to take a lot of studies and a lot of complex negotiations with the local authorities as well. And it does come into being that local authorities, you know, they have their own uh, county plans. So... You know they do have something to say about you know where bus routes are and where bus stops are and all of that, so there is a kind of a complexity which is worries me a bit because Ken, I think the the issue is this could even this launch uh, announcement could take a number of years to fulfill.
1: Um, We've seen prosperity improve uh, dramatically in this country in the last 30 years to the point where more people have cars than ever before. I don't know when I last saw a hitchhiker on the roads and uh, one would think that in this day and age that as more people use the car, uh, less people are using the buses. What guarantees do you have from the Minister that if five, maybe seven years down the line, uh, these proposed bus routes are not being used adequately by consumers, that that in fact uh, a lot of these routes could be closed down again?
7: Yeah, I think the thing about rural transport uh, that needs to be understood is that, yes, depending on where populations population are and depending on, on age group and all sorts of other factors, routes can be popular or they can decline. And I think the great strength of local link is that, you know, the planners at local level and these these operators can quickly uh, estimate whether a route is working or not. And if it's not working, they change the system. So I think that's part of this plan. And I think it has to be part of the plan because uh, the failure of rural transport up to now has been establishing a route, leaving it there for years and years without any evaluation and wondering then why people are not using it. You know, things change, life moves on, some villages get more people into them towns, Uh, some people, some villages don't, and you have to plan and and, uh, I suppose organize the routes accordingly. So I'd be more confident in the local link network that this is more achievable in that sense.
1: Uh, finally, Seamus, how confident are you that the rollout of 67 new bus routes across the country will help to, if you like, retain life in certain villages where there's been depopulation and thus maintain activity in rural parts of the country as more and more people move into towns and cities?
7: I'm reasonably confident because there's a couple of things happen. One, mainly, is that the there is a huge... Change in mindset to employers who are now asking people uh, to work from home if they can or allowing people to work from home and I think there is also a willingness borne about by the experience in COVID of young people and young workers to say look why can't I stay in my own area uh, it's cheaper in terms of housing and other things so in a way it's more attractive so I think that trend has already sort of set itself about That means there will be greater demands on services, especially transport. And if it's managed through the local link system, and if the Department of Transport and National Transport Authority continue to work strongly and closely with that system, then you will have a better design process. But again, like everything in this country, we really need to look at the logistics planning of these things and we have to ask the question why are they taking so long because uh, that's what's killing a lot of this uh, process and, and that's the only concern I have with this announcement.
1: All right, we'll leave it there. That's uh, Seamus Boland, who is CEO of Irish Rural League. We'll take a break. More to come.
3: Michael, Michael Reid on LMFM. Now, a
1: number of you have been in touch regarding the Northern Ireland protocol. We have a number of comments and they all more or less are saying the same thing. I'll just give you two for the moment and we'll return to the others a little bit later on. Tommy says the DUP will always say no and is not willing to compromise. So maybe it's now time to move on without them. Remember, they are in the minority now in the six counties Dave says the DUP are stuck in the past and they are not willing to move forward in any way they are like a bunch of kids throwing their toys out of the pram when they don't get their way now moving on and social justice Ireland is launching measuring progress sustainable progress index 2023 later today the global justice day uh, looks at what's called the 17 UN sustainable development goals and will basically take a look at where Ireland stands in relation to the rest of the class and I'll go through the 17 they're quite lengthy but I'll I'll do this as quick as i can goal number one is no poverty then there's zero hunger good health and well-being quality education gender equality clean water and sanitation affordable and clean energy decent work and economic growth industry innovation and infrastructure reduced inequality sustainable cities and communities responsible consumption and production climate action life before water life on land peace and justice and partnerships to achieve the goal. I'm joined on the line by Dr. Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland. Uh, Dr. Healy, would it be fair to say that Ireland would be near top of the class in most of those 17 categories?
6: No, I'm afraid we're not doing that well at all, Ken. Uh, we're, We're below the middle. Uh, where we don't even make the top half, so it's kind of uh, there are improvements since last year. We've been doing this now every year since the goals were first agreed in the UN in 2015, uh, and uh, we we see some some improvements this year. But we're still the overall ranking, and this is, you you're the first. Uh, uh, this is the first time I've actually said it in public, OK? So you've got an exclusive here. Uh, Ireland ranks eighth out of the 14 EU countries that we look at. Now, the reason we look at 14 EU countries, they're the kind of Western European countries that are our real peers. Uh, we, we believe there's no point in, in uh, comparing ourselves uh, with countries that have only joined the um, EU more recently and whose standard of living wouldn't wouldn't be as high as Ireland's uh, we have to basically compare ourselves with our peers And when we do that, we wind up overall 8 out of 14. Now, within that, we have divided it up into economic, uh, social, and environmental uh, sections, if you like. So the goals that are economic, we rank 9th out of 14 and on the social index we're 6th out of 14 it's the only one that we're in the top half and Ireland scores ninth on the environment index which basically I suppose suggest that notwithstanding progress being made in things like in areas like the climate action plan and the carbon budgets we face significant challenges in in meeting our environmental targets Uh, so we have some uh, serious issues if you like uh, that need to be be addressed
3: Okay
1: well let's go through uh, the areas where we're not performing well. Uh, What are if you like the areas that if you like we are amongst the worst. I mean, I presume poverty is one of the key ones, but every society has poverty, and I presume uh, climate action is up there somewhere as well.
6: Okay. Uh, If you look at at, at the actual 17 goals, and you read them out there very well, uh, Ireland is in the bottom five out of the 14. It's in the bottom five on nine of those 17 goals. And you're correct. The first one we're we're there in is poverty. No poverty is the goal. We're we're in the bottom nine, uh, or bottom five, I mean. So with zero hunger, that's the the second one. Gender equality, uh, clean water and sanitation, uh, affordable and clean energy industry innovation and infrastructure, responsible consumption and production, climate action, and partnership for the goals. So like, there's quite a range, oh, over half of the SDGs, were in the bottom five uh, performers uh, overall. And the, the four that are below us uh, fairly regularly, not on all, but almost all of those, are Greece, Spain, Portugal, and Italy. Uh, by comparison, the countries that are at the top of the list are Denmark, Sweden, the Netherlands and Finland. So they do very, very well. But uh, the fact that um, we're, uh, we're, we're sort of in the bottom five on nine of the SDGs, I think, w- is a serious cause for concern. There's absolutely no need for Ireland to be performing so poorly on poverty. We're a much better off country than we were 20, 30 years ago. Uh, We have the resources to make substantial dent in poverty. Uh, We seem to be moving in that direction for a few years, and now we seem to have changed direction again and gone backwards. And we will see more of that tomorrow with the government uh, making its decisions on on what to do about the, the cost of living. Because again, it's going to leave the poorest People on general welfare rates, depending on welfare rates and pensions, uh, I think they're going to be left in a situation where they're poorer this year. The value like, of their payment is going to be lower than it was last year or the year before. And that's no way of tackling the poverty goal here in the UN uh, development goals, sustainable development goals. Interestingly enough, Ireland had a huge role uh, in the development of these goals because the UN committee uh, that set, that developed them and got them agreed. Were co-chaired by Ireland and, and Kenya, and uh, so con- consequently, like we have a vested interest really in performing well on 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 these goals. But we're not doing very well at the moment. We, we like put it this way: we're making small progress, but we have an awful long way to go. And we're still, as I say, uh, below. We're still in the bottom five on on nine of the seventeen goals, which really isn't good.
1: I suppose the obvious question, Sean, is does the government care about UN Sustainable Goals or does it take the attitude that it leaves it to NGOs like yourself to, uh, if you like, bring about improvements in the various categories?
6: I suppose... some people would feel that exact that you, that's what the way you've set it out there is exactly the way government comes at it but the bottom line in it is, is there's absolutely no way that NGOs uh, can reduce poverty in Ireland I mean it's about the allocation of resources, it's about decisions that are made by government not by NGOs and uh, take the, that's only just taking the poverty one which is the very first one and that's why I'm taking it there but the same goes to, to if you're talking about things like gender uh, equality or zero zero. zero hunger you know, like we, do, we do poor enough actually on, the, on, on even that uh, SDG2 hunger because in actual fact uh, we're not seen as uh, developing uh, sustainable agriculture and that becomes a, a very big uh, negative then in the, in the calculation of where we are on that particular one. But um, the, the, the bottom line in it is Ireland has the resources, we have more than enough resources to make much greater impact on these sustainable Development Goals. And the reason for doing for doing that in the first place is that the goals are basically a blueprint that was agreed by countries across the UN, uh, that countries should focus on to achieve a better and more sustainable future. And uh, the, uh, what we're doing with this particular report is to try to inform interested parties, including government and, and obviously Irish and European citizens and policymakers generally and the various political parties, trying to inform them about how well ireland is or is not doing uh, on the various things just before be, before I, I just in case people feel that we're focusing only on the negative there are uh, ireland is in the top five on three of the goals and the first of those is good health and well-being the second is quality education and the third is sustainable cities and communities so good health and well-being uh, Ireland ranks fifth out of the 14 countries, um, but of course that doesn't actually take account yet of the COVID-19 um, f- uh, the pandemic. So when they, that kicks in, uh, it'll be uh, we'll see uh, where where that actually winds up. But so far we're doing okay. Um, there are quite serious negatives there in terms of the coverage and and uh, the, the access to to healthcare, and yet we're doing we we're, we're in the top. Likewise, in education, uh, Ireland, Ireland ranks first. It's the only goal that we rank first in, in the 14, and that's in quality ed- education. Um, and it, that's not a surprise. Ireland has been doing very well on the education front, from basic education to tertiary education. Ireland's reputation okay. for quality education is evident. And interestingly enough, we used to be doing well on education. But in recent years, we've made the effort, All we've right. made the decisions, put in the resources, and we get the results.
1: Uh, I should add, by the way, that NGOs are non-governmental organisations, just in case anyone wants to ring in and inquire. But uh, uh, the next question I want to ask you, Sean, is uh, these are United Nations or UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, Is anybody in the UN picking up the phone and ringing the government every so often to say, listen lads, how are we getting on with these 17 targets? Or uh, is is it left entirely to the government to act on its own initiative? No,
6: no. There's a very good process. Every single year the UN reviews these and they have a very substantial process in which they review certain goals and certain countries every year and the Irish government is there and has to report every year and not alone that but there'd be People there from the non-governmental organisations as well to ensure that that there's a a track kept of of all of this, and not alone that, but there's a great there's a very good welcome in the United Nations for this report. Every year they pick it up and they see a very good comparator for Western Europe here, and they're able to sort of look much more closely at that. So do the European Commission, by the way. So, but given that the goals are originally a, a UN creation, there it's interesting that they actually for because often what happens in the UN is things get forgotten Uh, you know decisions are made about the way things should be and then they're dropped completely but this is different and what's happened there is uh, is that there is this annual review process and um, I would be quite positive about the way the UN goes at this compared to the way that other things are dealt with. Uh, It will keep the government on their toes. The interesting thing, or the important thing, is that people in Ireland should be kind of alerted to and made aware of uh, how we're doing in all of this, and that's what we're trying to do with this particular publication each year, because it does give people a very good picture not just of how Ireland is doing, but how we're doing comparative compared sure, to sure. our uh, sure, sure. peer countries because sure. I think that's the basic well, thing that we really need to take a look at seriously.
1: W- one final question, and you'll uh, it, have to be quick about this, but uh, does the UN have any penalties programme in place? In other words, if we don't reach certain targets by certain dates, you know, we have to pay fines or we get a slap on the wrist and told not to do it again?
6: Uh, no, they, don't, they, they they might have something in the sense of when they do the reports and they review Ireland, Ireland doesn't come out well, but there's no penalties in that sense. The UN doesn't have that power Brussels does uh, not on the, not on these goals. That Brussels doesn't, but in, its, in wh- any goals that it sets, uh, Brussels can set uh, p- penalties, if you like. So, for example, if we don't uh, reduce our carbon footprint and all that sort of stuff, we wind up um, paying serious serious fines uh, on an annual basis. Uh, so, there's an incentive there, an additional incentive. But I would argue that uh, in in the context of the UN and these uh, sustainable. Development goals. What we should look at is the fact that if those 17 goals were achieved, we'd have a very sound, solid, sustainable future uh, set out for Ireland and for Irish people, and we'd be in a much better place to see balanced uh, development going forward. And I think that's where we need to be, not not stuck, if you like, uh, wondering uh, should we or shouldn't we do something because we might get a slap in the wrist or we might get a fine.
1: Okay. well, look, Sean, all I can say is keep up the fight, keep the pressure on the government to make sure that uh, we we carry out those uh, various jobs to ensure that uh, we improve our um, performances in those 17 categories. we we'll leave it there. That's Dr. Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland. We'll take a break.
3: Michael Reid on LMFM.
1: Now, Larry was in touch and says he doesn't think there is any hope of reaching a deal in the North any time soon. The DUP will do everything in their power to scupper the talks at every opportunity. They are determined to keep things in a state of chaos for as long as they can. Now, Dignity for Patients and the victims they support are outraged that the medical missionaries of Mary in Drogheda have requested a return of monies from the indemnity fund of 1.6 million euro it agreed with the state in 1997. Now, this fund was set up to pay for the sexual abuse cases that they knew were coming down the line and it seems uh, many people would feel that this is like adding to to injury because uh, the uh, behaviour of Dr Michael Shine at Our Lady of Lords Hospital in Drogheda indeed caused a lot of outrage and upset uh, One person who uh, certainly feels very outraged by this is Adrian Riley who is the CEO of Dignity for Patients uh, Adrian, um, talk us through what you know and the rage this is causing within Dignity for Patients
9: Good morning, hi how are you? Um, first of all I'd like to say thank you for inviting us to um, speak uh, on behalf of the victims and survivors this morning. Um, so, as you can imagine, people are extremely upset about this. Um, first of all, because there actually has never been a proper commission of investigation or inquiry into the prolific sexual abuse by Michael Shine over three decades, um, 30 years, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children and young people were abused. And to date, the state still has not been able to, for whatever reason, provide a proper investigation. So as you can imagine, the medical missionary of Mary trying to draw back and claw back funds that were set up to give the state the ability to pay out on civil and criminal cases or possibly explore other justice avenues. Is, it's unacceptable and it's not something that we're going to take lightly.
1: Um, I've been looking at the uh, reporting by Jack Horgan-Jones in the uh, Irish Times over the weekend, and it seems that there was within the contract uh, a provision which allowed for the appointment of an independent expert to make a determination on a withdrawal. So uh, while at face value this sounds awful it would appear and correct me if I'm wrong that the medical missionaries of Mary in Drogheda had a legal opt-out and that's what they're now exercising is that the case?
3: Yes
9: in the indemnity agreement which we have, we know inside out um, there is an opt-out clause after five years it would be looked at again to see if the medical missionary Mary want to withdraw any funds and then again reviewed every two years to date, I don't know that that was ever triggered or requested. And it was also our first time on Saturday to see that or hear that an independent expert had been appointed. And we would hope that that independent expert would speak to us because within the agreement, they are supposed to contact all relevant parties, which would be the state and the Medical Ministry of Mary. But we would also expect would be the victims and survivors and the group that represents them. So um, in law, yes, what they're doing is correct, but also the consideration must be given to the victims and survivors as priority. If this indemnity agreement and the state um, refusal to allow this to go ahead is not for the victims, then who is it for? If this money is not for them and their best rights and interests, then who is it for and why was it all set up?
1: Well, I could put the point to you, and I'm only being objective here, that while uh, at face value what's happening here is morally wrong, uh, the medical missionaries of Mary would say that they're only acting in accordance with a legal agreement, and that they haven't done anything wrong in this arrangement, but that the state appears to be asleep on the job. Would that be a fair assessment?
9: No. Um, absolutely not. The state, the medical remissionary of Mary, have done many things wrong. They have fought uh, tooth and nail, which we're trying to do against the victims and survivors. Each group of survivors that have got any pittance of compensation had to spend ten years through a whole court cycle to get any kind of. Tiny bits of money for their medical expenses, for the counselling they need, for their families, for the impact it has had on them. It has been horrendous and they have fought them the whole way. And on top of that, last year when the last round of civil payments was being paid out, it was supposed to happen last, uh, the year before, but the insurers fought with the Medical Missionary of Mary and put their pens down. So after it was adjudicated on, I spent another full year in battle. So I don't accept that they have done anything to support the victims and survivors that were under their care. And I also know that the state may have the same inklings that we have, that there are other criminal cases coming down the line and the DPP's office is involved with them and we're involved with the DPP's office and the victims and survivors and we know what's happening so the state could be getting a big bill down the line so they need to protect this money there has never been a proper commission of investigation we don't know what happened we need to have that immediately and that is uh, what needs to happen for the victims and survivors and I just want to say one more thing in 2010 the state set up an investigation process called the Smith Inquiry. We never got that report. The victims and survivors fought for four years to get transcripts. Smith's report is locked in the Department of Health and they can't even access it because a court judgment said it belongs to him and him alone. So where does does that leave everybody? Well, it
1: begs begs the question, why was the report written up in the first place? Um, But uh, let me ask you this question. When this story was published uh, at the weekend in the Irish Times, have any of those who've been abused and have not received compensation been on to you? And what are they saying?
9: They're saying that this money should be held until all the justice pathways have been exhausted we have new cases we have people coming to us walking in our door in the last six months sitting in front of us and saying my parents are dead now I can talk about this Um, I was a child, they brought me to Shine and I couldn't tell them because I know they couldn't have coped because they actually brought me to the abuser that is the stark reality of what we are dealing with, so to take away any funds that are earmarked for any of these people, is it's unacceptable. They are a religious organisation. Morals do count somewhere. They should be really listening to what we're saying. Step back and let us get what we really need. A commission of investigation, a public inquiry, the Smith report unlocked, and the state able to do its job. The state has a duty of care to all its citizens. And if we learned anything from the spirit and revelations, there is a public requirement now that we know what happened in terms of institutional sexual abuse on the island of Ireland.
1: This makes a shocking listening, if I say so myself. Uh, What are your options at this stage?
9: Well, we are delighted that the state is going to fight this, and we will be in touch with the relevant ministers. We're also asking that the independent expert, you know, Gets in touch with our office so that he can meet with the victims and survivors and our staff and really hear what we require, what we know, what we know about criminal and civil cases coming down the line and why we know that the state is right in fighting any withdrawal. We know we're the experts. Our our victims and survivors are the key experts. Their voice matters.
1: Was there an error made when the medical missionaries of Mary and Drogheda were allowed to put that clause in the contract that allowed them to, if you like, access money that they could withdraw? In other words, you said earlier on that money should be there until everybody is compensated. But having this clause in the contract appears to have given uh, the medical missionaries a bit of legal leeway, if you know what I mean. Was there an error made there?
9: At the time, it was 1997, you know, maybe at that time they thought that there would just be civil and criminal cases and they would be cut and dry. But what they didn't know was that hundreds of people had never divulged what happened to them. And what they also didn't know, and we didn't know at the time, was a different narrative landscape would then emerge from the institutional abuse inquiries. A different way to access justice was emerge because it's very difficult for children to provide the evidentiary test that's needed in law for the sexual abuse that happens then. And we're only developing all that language and narrative and finding justice ways to deal with it. And one of them is the public inquiry mechanism. So it's not really was it right or wrong. It's what happened at a time then... But we are where we are now and we need to address the issues currently in a human rights framework, with public inquiry mechanisms and with all the expertise that the brave survivors of the institutional abuse inquiries have given us to do this. Is it That's possible what should be happening?
1: Yeah, is it possible that the legal people representing the medical missionaries of Mary put this uh, clause into the agreement and then as part of their plan they decided to play what's called the long game. They've stretched this out and that point has now arrived whereby the medical missionaries effectively can get back 1.6 million euro. Do you think that was part of the plan?
9: I'm not sure. It was part of the plan because Um, you know they may have thought that it, it may go nowhere but on the other hand they may have thought that the state may have needed to activate it you know if the insurers wouldn't pay out or if there was other types of cases so I would like to believe that human beings are better than that and I'd like to believe that the medical missionary of Mary will now be better than
1: that. I should add, by the way, I keep saying 1.6 million euro. In fact, it was 1.6 million pounds or punts at the time. So that pushes the figure up to close on 2 million euro. Um, So, as you said, the state is going to fight this. Uh, Have you approached uh, TDs and ministers with a view to, if you like, uh, putting the pressure on the medical missionaries of Mary to be a little bit more humane uh, and morally right on this issue?
9: Yeah, we're in the process of doing that. We have been in touch with some of them over the weekend and we will be in touch with the ministers today. So um, that is what's happening. We've been flat to the mat just managing this over the weekend. It's been tough. It's been very tough for the victims and survivors.
1: Okay, well, look, Adrian, uh, keep us informed here on LMFM. It's a story, no doubt, we'll be returning to uh, in due course. And uh, we wish you well in your fight, as the saying goes.
9: Thank you so much. And I'd just like to say that, you know, our service is available because every time we're on the radio or on the TV, people call, you know, new people come to us. And we just want to say that we are here do call, we can give you the support you need, um, and don't be hesitant. There are people here to support you.
1: Very good. Okay, Okay. that's uh, Adrienne Riley there, CEO of Dignity for Patients. More to come. We'll take a break.
3: Michael Gold Reed
1: on LMFM. Sarah was in touch to say that she thinks that Rishi Sunik needs to tell Boris to wind his neck in and mind his own business. He was completely out of order with his comments over the weekend. This is too important an issue for disgruntled former leaders to be using it as a political football. Anne was in touch. She says she doesn't hold out much hope for government's promise to deliver on these new 67 bus routes by the end of the year. In her experience, government are very good at setting down deadline, deadlines but often Uh, than not they failed to meet them The transport infrastructure in rural Ireland is very poor and many villages and smaller towns have next to nothing in terms of services and this discrepancy needs to be addressed. Now, by the end of next week, the children of Ukraine will have endured 365 days of violence, trauma, loss, destruction and displacement since the war escalated and the country's 7.8 million children will have been robbed of 365 days of play, school memories and indeed time with friends and family joining me on the line right now is a man i haven't spoken to in a long long time he used to be a fianna fall td for limerick east but he's now the executive director of unicef uh good morning peter power thanks for joining us on the program um good morning, Ken. yes thank you for having me on yes indeed first of all can you just explain to us how bad the situation is for children in ukraine
8: well, it's very bad. The uh, the figures really speak for themselves. Uh, of the pre-war population of 40 million people, it's a big country, Ukraine, uh, 7.9, almost 8 million people have actually had to leave the country. Half of those have been children. So, so immediately 4 million children have had to leave the country entirely, uh, living in strange lands, strange cultures, strange languages, uh, without their fathers for the most part, Uh, living in in difficult conditions. So that's 4 million children. And then of the population that's left inside in Ukraine, about 32 million people. Uh, One in five of those people have had to leave their homes, their families, their communities and find somewhere else to live inside Ukraine. So there's there's the people who have left there's the people who live, and half of those, uh, approximately half of those are children. So all told, Ken, uh, we're talking about 17 million people in need of humanitarian assistance. Sorry for all the figures, but I'm just trying to give a yeah, yeah, uh, sense sure. of the scale, the scale, the ongoing scale of this humanitarian crisis. It's the biggest uh, movement of people, forced displacement of people, since the Second World War. So that, that's the sort of level we're talking about.
1: Uh, You say that a reported 438 children have been killed and 842 injured and you believe the real numbers are likely to be far higher. Do you have any idea how high the figures actually are? I
8: couldn't uh, even begin to put a figure uh, on this, uh, Ken, because these are the the absolute ones that UNICEF can verify 100%. uh, And obviously so many others uh, have been killed, maimed uh, and injured uh, and it, it it is impossible. Is it, is it twice? Is it three? Is it four times? I think it's um, in really impossible to put a figure on it but it is undoubtedly much higher. So they're, they're, the children have tragically lost their lives and no, no children, no child rather should ever be a, a victim of this type of uh, 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 conflict by adults, not by children. Uh, but they are invariably bearing the brunt uh, of of the invasion. So, uh, as you uh, said at the the top, so, you know, so many children have uh, had to leave their fathers, you know, their schools, their friends, and uh, it's the impact on those children who've survived is what we're really concerned about now in terms of providing them with the ongoing humanitarian support and assistance that they need to get through this crisis.
1: Am I right in saying, of course, that the bulk of the uh, Russian attacks are in the east of the country, and that the horror and trauma that those in the east of the country are going through uh, is not being experienced, we'd say, with the same level of intensity in the west and middle of the country?
8: It's a very good question, Ken, and you're correct. The most of the fighting is in the east. So many people, civilians, have obviously left the east now. And this is what I was alluding to earlier on. Even though uh, the the attacks are focused in the east, there still are attacks in so many other uh, areas of the country. Not as intense, but those attacks tend to be uh, against infrastructure, uh, schools, medical facilities, uh, which is obviously affecting the quality of life. So the, so a lot of people have moved over to the West, uh, places like Lviv and other areas. Uh, so they're, they're living in different accommodation uh, without all of the normal services that, that uh, they need. Uh, and, and they're the ones that we really are focused on. A lot, a lot of these children uh, would, have, would be facing psychological trauma. Uh, The loss of uh, loved ones, the loss of their fathers, invariably for uh, being involved in the war, uh, and uh, they they need an awful lot of humanitarian support.
1: Okay, how is the Irish contribution to the humanitarian effort uh, panning out? Where do where do we rank in terms of international contributions?
8: very, very high up. I cannot give you an exact league table but I know from uh, the contributions to UNICEF here in Ireland, uh, we rank very, very high up in the right across the global uh, support that UNICEF has received and we're extremely uh, grateful to Irish people who clearly uh, are moved by the uh, plight of people in Ukraine. They're moved by what has happened to so many millions of people. Uh, they they want to show solidarity. That's the message we've been getting back uh, from people in Ireland. How can we help? Uh, is it by in-kind donations? Is it by cash donations? As you know, many people have gone out to try and help. Many people have uh, sheltered uh, refugees. But I think Irish, Irish people have a real sense of the unjust nature of this war, that it's an unprovoked and unjustified attack on millions and millions of people. Uh, And Ireland, uh, I can say certainly from a UNICEF perspective, uh, have stood up in an amazing way. And we've been able to deliver 15 million euros worth of humanitarian assistance in Ukraine that's just from Ireland uh, right across the world so many other people have supported UNICEF's uh, work and we're having a real tangible effect on the ground at scale so the response from Ireland has
1: been terrific. Um, I know there's a lot of Irish charities if you like doing their bit for the cause um, is there anything that Irish people can do to assist UNICEF and you in your ongoing work?
7: Well, we, as I said,
8: Ken, we have received uh, enormous support from from the Irish people, and, and let me tell you, this, what what, what is that achieving uh, on the ground? Uh, Well, firstly, for the the children I mentioned, so many children are in need of psychological and social support. uh, And we have teams of people uh, throughout Ukraine uh, supporting children in that way. Children also need to continue their education. Millions of children have had their education interrupted. So we're working uh, with the government and so many local authorities and educational authorities to get education back up and running, either in schools by trying to rehabilitate schools or by providing uh, good online learning for children because their education has to continue. We're also providing a clean water, in affected areas. That's one of the things that UNICEF specializes in when there's damage to water infrastructure. We're doing the same in Turkey and Syria, I should say, at the moment. And then finally, medical supplies, hygiene supplies, uh, warm clothing, warm blankets for children. It got down to minus 20 at one stage this winter without a lot of electricity. So that's what Irish people have contributed to.
1: OK, well, look, all I can say, Peter, is on behalf of everybody in the Louth area, keep up the good work, and hopefully the war in Ukraine will end shortly. We're going to have to leave it there. That said, Peter, you, Power, Peter Power there, the Executive Director of UNICEF, and that just about wraps up the programme for this morning. Chris Murray was in sound, Maggie Maguire produced, Sinead Brazzle is next. I'm Ken Murray, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow morning just after the 9 o'clock news. Until then, bye for now.